Today's reading is Amos chapter 9. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away, not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Shehol, from there my hand will take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in heaven and founds his vault upon the earth who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, the people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did, not, did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, Disaster shall not overtake or meet us. In that day I will raise up the birth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treaders of grapes him who sows the seed the mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it i will restore the fortunes of my people israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine they shall make gardens and eat their fruit i will plant them in their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. The word of God through Amos is clearly and categorically about judgment in the first instance, a bleak and, and comprehensive judgment by a holy God upon sinful humanity. Flick back to chapter 1 in your Bibles for a minute, if you could, uh, just to catch this. Amos declares God's judgment upon 
the neighbouring nations all around Israel. If you can lock in that first uh, block of text there from from Amos chapter 1 and and verse 3 through 5, well, God singles out Damascus there, representing the nation Aram, uh, for judgment for three transgressions or, or sins of Damascus, judgment on the nation of Aram. Verses 6 through 8 then, for three transgressions of Gaza and the other cities listed of the nation Philistia, judgment. For three transgressions of Tyre, verses 9 and 10, judgment. For three transgressions of Edom, verse 11 and 12, judgment. For three transgressions of Ammon, verses 13 to 15, judgment. And if we just push into chapter 2 a little bit, verses 1 to 3, for three transgressions of Moab, judgment. No surprises there in any of that, we would think, for, for Amos's audience in Israel. Of course the Lord will bring judgment on all those ungodly nations all around them. We like to think of judgment coming down on other people, don't we? But take a close look while we're here at at chapter 2 and and verse 4. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah, I will send a fire upon Judah. That's the people of God, Judah. The people of God in the southern state at that time, and his people in the north too, if you look at verse 6. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, judgment. Verse 13, Behold, I will press you down in your place, as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life, etc., etc. Judah, verses 4 and 5, and and Israel, verses 6 to 16, are both under the same declaration of judgment as the nations around them are, because they too are sinful. Amos chapter 2 must have been much harder on those Israelite ears than Amos chapter 1 was. We never like the suggestion, do we, that that we deserve judgment. But for six more chapters, as it happens, from chapter 3 through chapter 8, the, the message of Amos is actually directed squarely at the nation of Israel. A people who, of course, had had held such a special place in the Old Testament narrative, called to be a nation of priests unto God. But in fact, the other nations at the start there in chapter 1 were were just to set the scene so that the Israelites wouldn't miss what God was saying here against them, just how wicked God was calling Israel out to be. So as we come back to chapter 9 now, uh, if you would, uh, at chapter 9 in our text for today, you've now got the basic thrust of Amos that that gets us to this point in this chapter we've just read. A judgment is coming against the sin of all nations and even to those who probably least expect it. And quite powerfully, wouldn't you say, by the time we're here in chapter 9 in the text we did read, this isn't just uh, for all nations, but, but for all people. There will be no escape when this judgment comes. Amos tells us what he saw about this, what he heard from God on the scope of this judgment. Chapter 9 and verse 1, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. 
and those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. Judgment is coming. Even for God's people in Israel, judgment is coming. And when it comes, nobody will escape. If they dig into Sheol, verse 2, Sheol, the belly of the earth, that is, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Mount Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. If they hide from my side at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. If they go into captivity before their enemies there, I will command the sword and it shall kill them. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good, says the Lord. And so we find ourselves then in in a terrifying scripture today, not just on behalf of ancient Israel and, and the various nations around them, but because Amos is also keying us into the Bible's teaching that, that actually runs right through the scriptures, a teaching about the universality of human sin. And so it's, it's a teaching, therefore, that we too must process as we sit here and read these words. There is a coming judgment deep down. We, we all instinctively know that. Unless we fooled ourselves or something. We know we are sinful, every one of us, if we are honest, and we know that someday it will be brought to account. Because so too, we know that God is not sinful, but, but the very judge against sin. And if we take those two things together, therefore we eventually have to see that, that God will, will have to judge sin in everyone, even us. The Lord God of hosts, verse 5, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile. He who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth. He who calls for the waters of the sea and, and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. We're not talking here about some workaday government official, nor some sensitive new policy trying to reduce the number of sentences that get handed out. No, 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 we're talking about the perfect judgment of the living, almighty God, from whom and through whom and to whom all things have been made. Our sin is against that God. We can be confident that the judgment he declares here through Amos, which, which is some 2,800 years ago now, is, is right. He calls out here even the nation of Israel, whom he chose. He calls them out for their sin. And even more so, it seems, because he had called them. They had known him and, and his call upon them. They now stand judged along with everyone else in God's all-encompassing perfect judgment of human sin. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Israel is just like all the other nations on this score. Amos finishes in chapter 9 the way it began in chapters 1 and 2, but, but with even more distant nations and events brought in for even more context on this. Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kerr? 
We don't know anymore, actually, where Kaftor or Kerr were in history, but possibly Crete to the far west of Israel and Elam to the far east. What this verse and a couple of other rare scriptures like this verse teach us is that just like God once brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt, so too he had even earlier brought the Philistines out of Kaftor and the Arameans out of Kerr. Now, if you recall chapter 1 that we just glanced at, those Philistines and and Arameans God had previously rescued are about to be judged for their sin. He declared that in chapter 1, and Israel will be judged just like them, he declares in the rest of this book. They're just the same, God declares on this matter, because they too have rejected the God who had rescued them from their oppression and blessed them so much. It is the Lord's choosing who and when to rescue and make prosper. And yet Israel have failed to take proper stock of that, proving themselves to be just like everyone else. Because here's the reality underneath all this. Sin runs through every human being. And the word of God from Amos could not be clearer on this point, such as in chapter 9 and verse 1 where we began. The judgment will be complete. No one shall escape. Except for the fact that God will save some people when this judgment comes. Everything God just declared so categorically, wouldn't you say, through through Amos, it all just suddenly, mysteriously, just just cracks in verse eight as, as an impossible hope just just opens up. The first half of verse eight. Notice again, yes, sure, the judgment again declared, and the judgment will be perfect. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. The language continues just as it has been, and there can be no doubt God's still speaking of Israel here when he says the sinful kingdom, as has been the focus of the last seven chapters at this point, and as the immediate context just there in verse 7 makes perfectly clear, that they're just the same as the other nations, verse 7, and they will be destroyed from the face of the earth, verse 8. A. Because that's where something gives if we turn to the rest of that verse, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, that is, Israel, declares the Lord. I will not utterly destroy the house of Israel, says God. If you don't read anything else in Amos, then make sure you catch chapter 9 and verse 8 here at the end, I reckon, because this is the crux of it all, right here in this verse. There will be no escaping God's judgment, except for the fact that some will be saved. The next four verses repeat that seeming contradiction, so we don't miss it, I think. First of all, in verses 9 and 10, the judgment, yes, confirmed again. Behold, I will command and and shake the house of Israel among the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, Disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Israel are to be judged just like all the other nations. 
And again, the sieve will not miss one single soul, I think we can take this to mean. Though they think they're beyond judgment, verse 10, Israel's probably in line for the rudest shock of all. And yet, the hope that broke into that second part of verse 8 is also picked up again and reconfirmed in verse 11 and 12. In that day, I will raise up the booth, or tent that is, I will raise up the tent of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. How can these two things possibly sit side by side? That there should be a a comprehensive judgment such that none shall escape, verse 1 through 8a, and again in a reprise in verses 9 and 10, and and yet at the same time there be some kind of restoration and re-establishing and renewal in, in which some shall be saved, verse 8b, and then the reprise, verse 11 and 12. How can they both be? Welcome to the Gospel according to Amos. We've seen time and again in this series, God's prophets were were perfectly comfortable proclaiming universal sin and universal judgment, therefore, while in the next breath declaring hope, salvation, renewal, judgment, and yet hope. This is the interwoven message of God's prophets. And they tend to give little, if any, commentary on on how this tension can possibly hang together. They just roll from one right into the other. Because it seems God's prophets were comfortable in in the basic truth that it runs right through Scripture. That God is not just perfect in his justice against our sin, but perfectly merciful to us too. And here in the Gospel according to Amos... And without any need here to explain that God is free to show mercy towards people who do deserve his full judgment, we simply see that a new kingdom is on the cards in God's sweet mercy in all of this. A kingdom that will come through the city of David in Israel, verse 11, and yet a kingdom which will include people from all nations, verse 12, who carry God's name. It's right there in black and white, isn't it? And so two things I think our heart is supposed to be burning to know at at this point in Amos chapter 9. How do we go from the one to the other? We all deserve judgment, so no one is worthy, and so so none shall escape. So how can we find ourselves in this, this new kingdom of those who will mysteriously be saved? And when will this happen? When will this new kingdom begin? Well, on the second question, we can sit here today and and know exactly when the salvation in Amos 9 began. Because the New Testament explicitly interprets these words from Amos as as pointing to a work of God's Spirit that began nearly 2,000 years ago. 
as people from other nations started being brought into this new kingdom from David's tent of, of which Amos here speaks. And the scripture I'm thinking of is in Acts chapter 15. The first council, all the elders of the churches gathered together, the first presbytery meeting really, or, or assembly of Jesus' church. Although in those days, of course, the elders also had the apostles with them too. Jesus' friend, Peter, and Jesus' former enemy, Paul, and Jesus' brother, James, led the church through the very tricky interweaving of of people from Israel who had come into Jesus' church, together with people from other nations who had also come into Jesus' church. There was tension around that, as you might appreciate if you give it enough thought. The apostles and the elders gathered and discussed uh, how to integrate the two peoples together in Jesus' new church. And let me read to you, uh, as Paul and Barnabas set the scene, let me read what James also had to say in regard to Amos chapter 9 and verses 11 and 12. This is in Acts 15, verse 12. All the assembly fell silent And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles, or or the other nations outside Israel, that word means. After they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, Simon Peter, we'll get to him in a minute. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, James said, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Jesus' apostles understood Amos 9, verse 11 and 12 to have, to have kicked in back in their time because God had started bringing people, both Jews and Gentiles alike, God had been bringing people under his name. So with that interpretive help from later scriptures, we can know that, that this part of Amos' prophecy in, in verses 11 and 12 has already begun. It's talking about Jesus building his church. Which means we can then now uh, have clarity on on this hope now as as we rip into that other question we were thinking uh, of how then we can be saved from this judgment. If God's judgment is so perfect such that none will escape, how can we be brought into this, this new kingdom that Amos speaks of? How do we come to be one of those who bear God's name? The same passage in Acts 15 actually gets us an in on that one too because the question at hand at that first council in Jerusalem, the question at hand was our question here, what the Gentiles had to do as they came into Jesus' church. And here is what Simon had said in regards to that. In Acts chapter 15 verse 7, After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, 
You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Explicitly, if you want to read that again later in Acts 15, explicitly we can go and we can only go from the one state to the other by by putting our faith in Jesus. And the Lord Jesus will most certainly save us into this new kingdom. For this is why he came. The rebuilding and the the possessing of the nations, as God had phrased it through Amos, is is explicitly about the establishment of Jesus' church. In him and, and by him, we are transferred from the judgment we deserve to the salvation we don't by the grace of our Lord. And the way these two powerful truths can hang together without compromising either one is because Jesus himself reconciled the two. You see, here's the gospel that that Amos is, is quietly setting us up for with these unfathomable words from God in verses 11 and 12. God's righteous judgment against human sin has now been poured out on Jesus Christ for all who will come under his name. It will otherwise still come down on everyone else who won't. There will be no escape, but there will be sure salvation for all who let their judgment fall on Jesus. There is no other hope in the face of that coming judgment. As Simon Peter had explained, actually, earlier in that book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4, there is salvation in no one else but Jesus Christ. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Where are you sitting at this moment in terms of this great tension that runs through Scripture? This tension about the inescapability of God's righteous judgment against sin and and his inexplicable mercy despite that. Where are you sitting in this? Are you heading for judgment as you and I and everyone else rightly deserves from this holy God? Are you heading for judgment? Or are you covered and cleansed by faith in Jesus Christ, stepping in to take your judgment on his cross by the grace of our Lord? If you're in line for judgment and would rather 
receive the salvation instead, then hear today this simple gospel invitation, courtesy of Amos, with a little bit of that interpretive help from Jesus' apostles. You do deserve judgment. You do deserve judgment, just like everyone else. Don't let your heart deceive you into, into some false sense of security on that. That this disaster won't catch up with you, as, as in the foolish words there of the people in verse 10. Actually, the word of God just could not be any clearer on that matter. You do deserve judgment. But 2,000 years ago, God began creating a new kingdom sparing people from his right wrath against sin so as to call together and cleanse a people for his name. By the grace of the Lord Jesus, your heart can be purified by faith in him, such that you too are brought into this new kingdom he's making. And there is no other way. There is no third position on this. And so notice, please, that, that salvation uh, here doesn't require any paperwork. You know, there's no list of things to tick off or anything like that. There's no ceremony either, no convoluted pathway, no complex theological training, uh, nor anything else involved in this. Just as sweetly as Amos here gave no commentary whatsoever on how we suddenly go from being the enemies of God to being the people of his name, so too Peter said in that passage in Acts 15, if you look it up, if I can repackage it for you, uh, for you, uh, for you and I to think about today, but Peter said too that this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like for us when we are transferred from the one to the other. God made a choice that we might hear this gospel and believe that he might give us the Holy Spirit, that he might purify our hearts by simple faith, that through the grace of our Lord Jesus, we too may be saved. So just come in, is the gospel call today. Just come in. God himself has reconciled the tension between where you should stand and where you can stand if you but come to him and receive of his grace. Don't miss that gospel call today if, if you haven't already heard it and believed. Don't miss that gospel. Acknowledge the truth and reality of your sin and the truth and reality, therefore, of the judgment that you deserve. And be broken by that. Be broken. Repent. Turn to God. Come to God and ask instead for his grace to you in the name of Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For this is the word of God. And if you have believed, you've heard that gospel and put your faith in Christ and come into this mercy of God, then, then please be sure to capture today the, the certainty of, of his salvation in Amos 9, in that it comes entirely from God's hand and not from yours.
I don't know which word to put the emphasis on here in verse 12. The Lord who does this, or the Lord who does this. Friends, how can we grasp the certainty of God's judgment, but then think that that, that his salvation might somehow be fickle or or, or wishy-washy or or, or flaky or something, when we're talking about the same Lord in each case? No, no, rest assured, my brothers and sisters, the Lord will do this. Praise be to God. The last little part of Amos is a bit trickier. Don't you reckon? Verse 13 to 15. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the ploughman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Based on the way that that book of Acts interprets verse 11 and 12 as as speaking of Jesus building his church and building his church of both Jew and Gentile, I'd suggest those final verses then are, are, are speaking about an inheritance for all of us who have turned to God to look forward to. Old Testament Israel did return from a literal exile to rebuild in their literal land, as in the language of verse 14 there. But verse 15 doesn't really fit so well with the Roman destruction of their land that followed later. Rather, it's the, it's the new kingdom picture on view here, I think. The new kingdom pictured for us. It's poetry to help, to, to help all of us hold fast to our faith as we wait for the glorious final outcome of all this. The wondrous joy still in store for all who come and receive of God's mercy in the name of Jesus Christ. And it's the polar opposite, isn't it, of being destroyed from the face of the earth, as we all do deserve, isn't it? To be taken instead and taken forever into this this sweet joy eternally of, of God's new kingdom. In another sense, though, the picture of the joy and, and the security here at the, at the end of Amos in these few verses, it already has begun in the heart of the believer. The restoration and the rebuilding work of God's new kingdom is is already underway. So, So those who have come under the name of Jesus are being made new, even now, as they sit in discipleship under Jesus as their Lord. We haven't yet received the full joy of of heaven uh, that's to come in the end, but but already we know that we can never be plucked from his hand. I reckon Jesus might have flagged that that not yet but already mystery in these verses in in John chapter 4 when he said, Do you not say that there are yet four months and, and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. 
Already, Jesus said, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. God's mysterious work of rebuilding, renewal, restoration is already swirling around in our hearts, even now. The reaper has been overtaken by the ploughman, in some sense. The planter has been overtaken by the one treading grapes. New wine has already started to drip and flow into and through every saved soul in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I hope you enjoy meditating on Amos through the week. But I better close for now in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us today through your prophet Amos. Thank you, Father, for being blunt in this word, for being honest in this word with us, that that our sin is so incredibly offensive to you that it does deserve this judgment. Help, Help us to understand, Father, that Our sin is that offensive. Thanks for being blunt and honest with us. It's not just one or the other of us. It's all of us who should receive your perfect and righteous judgment. But thank you too for then declaring to us this unfathomable hope here that, that despite what we deserve, you have so graciously decided to save all who come unto you. Father, on behalf of those who haven't yet come to you, I pray, therefore, that you move their heart this day as they read and, and, and meditate on Amos, and that they would meet you in repentance and that you would save them to yourself. Father, please cleanse their hearts by faith according to your word. And for those who have come, Father, I pray Please fill them, fill them with the assurance of that faith that your good and faithful name demands. And then make us more and more and more new. Through Jesus we do pray. Amen.